Good morning one more time. If you could please turn in your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. And this morning, as we look at this passage, we're going to see Paul driving home one of the precious benefits that is ours in Christ Jesus, that in Christ, we are saints and members of the household of God. And that is a beautiful thing to dwell upon, and I I look forward to dwelling on it with you this morning. But this morning's focus is not actually going to be on that benefit per se, but it's going to be on this tiny little prepositional phrase, in Christ. Now, many of you know I'm in seminary right now. I'm learning Greek for the first time, and it's kind of (laughs) mind-blowing the way language works. I've never thought about it so deeply, but... As, as you learn languages, little words like in carry a lot of meaning. And then when you, you couple that with the word in, Christ, it, it is truly an awe-inducing little phrase. And within that phrase and other related phrases, the wondrous doctrine of union with Christ is, is open before us, and it's, that doctrine is like an ocean, like an ocean well worth exploring. And let me tell you, it, it, it requires exploration. It requires exploration. Union with Christ appears on nearly every page of the New Testament in so many different ways that it's really an inexhaustible topic. Now, it must be admitted, there's no one single verse in the New Testament that ad- directly addresses what is union with Christ. So, in a way, the doctrine can hide in plain sight, sort of like the ocean, The ocean covers 70% of the globe, and some people never see it. But when we come to Paul, union with Christ is so important. It's so pervasive in his writings that theologians and scholars say that union with Christ is the, the doctrine that provides the framework for everything Paul writes and thinks about. It is the structure for all of Paul's theology. So this is an ocean that we are approaching is doctrine. And before we even tip our toes into the water, perhaps I should back up and give a definition. What is union with Christ? Well, in short, union with Christ is when the the Holy Spirit spiritually unites our person to the person of Christ and then applies and actualizes all of Christ's works and applies and actualizes His life in our life. That sounds complicated. Let's, we can break it down a little bit. The Holy Spirit takes you, dear Christians, and unites you to Christ in such a way that Christ's person, his works, and his blessings become yours. Christ's person becomes yours. His works become yours. His blessings become yours. And when you put it in those terms, every blessing that can come to you, possibly through your redemption, then is part and parcel of union with Christ. And that's what Paul says in Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. To summarize then, union with Christ is a big topic, and it's a big deal. And like the ocean, we will not have time to explore all of it this morning. But we can go up to the water's edge and like the ocean, when you look out and you see the sun reflecting off the water, we're going to come to this passage 
to the water's edge, and we're going to see how the Son, Jesus Christ, is reflected in this passage. And we will see how union with Christ is something to glory in and to enjoy. So let us now together read our passage, Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. This is God's Word written for you. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Our holy God, word made flesh, we, we ask that just as Jesus during his earthly ministry opened up the word for people to see him in the scriptures, will you open up this word for us this morning that we will behold your Christ? And in a, during a time where people are speaking so many words in this changing generation, as we come to your unchanging word, may it be the foundation upon which we are built. And may your word penetrate our hearts. And your word, will, we pray that it will create in us a response of joy and praise. And we ask this all in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so this morning we're looking at what it means to be in union with Christ, and we're going to tackle it from three different perspectives. First, grace in Christ. Second, your identity in Christ. Third, our unity in Christ. And, and note, I said three perspectives. It's not three points. What, what am I just being semantical? No, I promise I'm not. These aren't three separate points because Paul doesn't write that, these things, as points that can be separated. In Christ, they all come together. They can't be separated theologically. These are perspectives. You know, earlier I said union with Christ is like an ocean because it's so vast, but it's also like a diamond. I had to Google how many faces there are on a diamond, a facet. There can be over 140. That's crazy. Likewise, a diamond, you can take time to look at just one tiny little face on the diamond we can take time to look at one little face on what it means to be in union with Christ 
But at some point, we have to take a step back and say, it's one whole package. It's one whole diamond. It's all one whole doctrine. So, three perspectives then. Grace in Christ, your identity in Christ, and our unity in Christ. First, grace in Christ. Paul begins in verses 11 through 12 by, he begins by reminding his Gentile audience of their shameful past and the consequences they suffered from it. So let's see how he does that. You see, he says, therefore, remember. Now that's an imperative, meaning it's a command. Paul is saying, I command you to bring to a conscious recollection. You need to remember. So what, what does he want them to remember is the question. And before he even answers it, he says, Rem- remember that at one time you, and then he describes their pedigree, the pedigree of his readers. He says, you Gentiles. His readers were primarily Gentiles. And I told you I'm learning Greek. So if I don't use it, that means I'm not practicing for school. So allow me to use a little bit of Greek. Te ethne. Uh, it can simply refer to anyone born outside of Israel. Uh, the, the, the root, ethnos, uh, could just mean nation or nations. And that's, so that's, that, that's definitely part of what he means by Gentiles. It means anyone not born a Jew. But carried in that word is this idea, especially for the Jewish people and especially for Paul, if you weren't a Jew, you were worshiping a false deity by default. So, that, in, in other words, being born not a Jew means you were an idol worshiper. In other words, when Paul says, you Gentiles in the flesh, he's basically saying, you people born pagan. In Jewish eyes, not being born a biological descendant of Abraham was to be born a biological pagan, to be born unclean. And we see that play out in the book of Acts, how the Jews didn't want to interact with the Gentiles because Gentiles were unclean by their very nature, by their flesh. And no, it's not something they did, right? They didn't choose to be born a Gentile. It's just who they were. And that's why it was pretty common back in the day to hear a Jewish person refer to a Gentile as a dog, because dogs were unclean animals, so Gentiles are as valuable as an unclean dog. And the, but the Jewish people, the circumcised people, also referred to Gentiles as the uncircumcision. For the Jews, circumcision wasn't just uh, about being physically different. For them, it, it was how they viewed themselves in good standing before God. So for the Gentiles then who were uncircumcised, that was, that was a sign that they were shameful before God and others. So we can kind of paraphrase what Paul is saying here in verse 11 and 12. Uh, he's saying, hey, you, you uncircumcised Gentiles, biologically, spiritually, socially shameful by birth, I want you to remember something. And then in verse 12, he finally tells us what we need to remember. He wants them to remember all the problems that that came from that. He's just digging down deeper. He says, because of this shameful past, you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise. And the sum result of all of that is that they had no hope, and they were without God in the world. And it's crazy, because all of those things were beyond the, the control of the Gentiles. They didn't choose to be born that way. They didn't choose what consequences would be brought out from that. So what is Paul doing? 
Is Paul just trying to rub their faces in what they did and who they were, saying, look what you did, bad dog, bad dog? Is he living up to that Jewish expectation of shaming the Gentiles? No, by no means. Paul is saying, remember the shameful, the guilty, and the hopeless situation you were in. And then in verse 13, he says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Paul then is commanding his readers to recall their past shameful, their past guilty, their past hopeless situation in order that they might see better the life-changing nature of grace that is found in Christ. Earlier in Ephesians, Paul made it very clear, this, this guilty, hopeless, uh, uh, shameful situation, that's not just a Gentile issue. We read in Ephesians 2, starting at verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So he's referring to the Gentiles there. You were dead following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And then note this transition, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. So Paul is clear. Jew and Gentile alike are dead in the sins and trespasses. But Paul also goes on to say in that beloved passage, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, and catch this, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So what he just said there in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, that's what he's illustrating in our passage this morning. This is, this is a real-life illustration. The Gentiles were born into shame and guilt. They were separated from Christ and hopeless. Nothing they could do, nothing they could offer, no work they could bring before God could take away the shame and guilt but they were saved by grace through faith. They are the workmanship of God created in Christ Jesus. Dear Christian, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ by faith, then his blood has made you into something new. You are God's workmanship. And how are we made into God's workmanship? In Christ Jesus. And then again in verse 13, like as we read, it says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So this is the grace of God that we have because of our union with Christ. Paul also puts it this way in Ephesians 1.7, in him we have redemption through his blood. In him, you hear that? In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Now, Paul's also there's, there's an underlying theology here, right? What is this grace that we have in Christ? Is it as the Roman Catholics teach, where grace is like a tangible thing, like a spiritual currency that you can save up and you can draw from when you need it? No, that is not what Paul says. Is it what the Roman Catholics say that Protestants teach? They say, you Protestants teach a, a legal fiction, that justification by faith is a legal fiction. It's just that God changed his mind. That's what you Protestants teach. No, 
That is not what we see here. In Paul's mind, grace for the Christian is inseparable from being united to Christ. Apart from Christ, there is no grace. There is no hope. But in Christ, by being united to Christ, there is grace. And this grace is that Christ has paid for your sins. His blood was shed for your sins, and you were cleansed by it. That is not a legal fiction. The punishment happened. But by our union with Christ, the blessings and the life that Christ has to give are made ours. And Paul also goes on to show in our passage this morning many other multiple gracious blessings. And as you read the New Testament for yourselves, you will see that everything comes back to union with Christ. All these blessings and much, much more made graciously available to us because we are united to Christ. And that is the grace we find in Christ, that God being rich in mercy and full of deep, deep love, as we sang, has raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places so that in the coming ages he might show to us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. The grace that comes by our union with Christ is a humbling doctrine. But that leads us to consider then the next perspective, our identity in Christ. Our identity in Christ, in short, means that our most basic fundamental identity becomes that we are in Christ. That is what defines us the most. Now, already this morning, we've seen how the Jewish people despised the Gentiles. Um, Unless we are too quick to judge, uh, the Gentiles did the same thing back The Gentiles uh, treated the Jewish people despicably, and they looked down on them. So there was animosity on both sides, and much of it had to do with, like, these fleshly markers. It had to do with the flesh, right? And that's what we read in verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. So two times there, in flesh, in flesh. Fleshly markers are things such as, in this time, who were your descendants? Who were you descended from? For the Jews, they were descendants of Abraham, and that was a a source of pride, ethnic pride. The Gentiles were just happy not to be Jewish. What else was matter? Where you were born? For the Jews, they were they were born in Israel. That meant a lot, especially in uh, early second or late Second Temple Judaism. That meant a lot, and the Jew uh, Gentiles were just happy not to be born there. Another fleshly marker that we see in verse 11 is circumcision. And, and note how Paul's kind of playing with this idea here. Uh, no, in your, if you're reading the ESV, it's probably in quotations. It says, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Paul's referring to the rite of circumcision here, but he's doing something with it. He's kind of putting a twist on the idea. Because the Jews would misuse the rite of circumcision. They use it as a means to claim privilege, special honor because of the ritual. They called themselves the circumcision, meaning they based their identity on something which is made in the flesh by hands. They took the Old Testament sign of circumcision, which was given by God in order to point us to Christ. They, they took it and misused it as a way to boister their own ethnic and spiritual pride. And It's ironic in a way that circumcision for them was a source of pride, 
the Gentiles viewed circumcision as a, a source of shame. They thought it was embarrassing. So both groups, the Jews and the Gentiles, used these fleshly markers in order to define who they were as a people. They used these markers to claim superiority over people, and they used them to alienate one another. Both parties, both parties are guilty of defining their identity by fleshly, earthly markers. But Paul, Paul would have none of that. For Paul, those fleshly markers are not the most important thing of who you are. For Paul, the most important thing is whether or not you are in Christ. He says to his readers, remember, you were separated from Christ, but now you are in Christ, and that changes everything. For Paul, the most fundamental thing about who you are comes down to this. Are you alive in Christ, or are you dead apart from him? It's two options. As Paul also put it in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. The Gentiles, we already saw from here, our passage, that they were born apart from Christ. They were born separated from Christ. And for Jews, unbelieving Jews, though they were born into the visible community of God, Paul says in Romans 11, they failed to obtain Christ. So either way then, both Jew and Gentile apart from faith, had the same identity, separated from Christ, dead in Adam. So your union with Christ means that your most basic identity is no longer defined by fleshly markers. If you are in Christ, that is your identity. That is your most fundamental identity. And that has radical implications, especially in today's culture. Today's secular ideologies uh, especially those of critical social justice theories or intersectionality, they say not only is race, gender, and sexuality, not only do they define who you are, they also define what you can know. They define what you can experience. That ideology cannot be reconciled to Scripture without mutilating what, the, the, what it teaches. Unless you, I, I don't want you to think I'm just throwing stones, um, I'm not just some Christian who says, oh, tisk tisk. Uh, they teach that. Dr. Ibram X. Kindi, while promoting his book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, while he was in Manhattan's Judson Memorial Church, he stated unequivocally, unequivocally, he, he pulled no punches. He said, Christian savior theology must be fundamentally rejected. The idea that J Jesus came to save, and these are his words, behaviorally deficient people. He says, this idea that Jesus came to save people from their behavioral deficiencies is racist and used to create bigotry. In his worldview, the idea of being separated from Christ, this idea of being dead in Adam because of sin, that's all rejected. It's just behavioral deficiency. And consequently, consequently when you remove sin, you don't need a savior. Brothers and sisters, ethnicity, gender, they are gifts from God. They are meaningful. We see that in Scripture. Paul, uh, multiple occasions, especially Romans 11, shows that he is, he's, he's proud to be a Jew. He was proud of his people. He, he loved his people. But for Paul, that's not the most important thing. You cannot elevate these fleshly markers into being levels of identity without creating walls of hostility. 
Fleshly markers, when erected as your identity, will alienate. It will, uh, it will create hostility. It destroys peace. It destroys unity. Fleshly markers cannot define who you are. Your identity is this. You are either in Christ or you are not. And in Christ, there is ne- neither Jew nor Greek. Rather, as Paul says here, there is one new man in the place of the two. In Christ, he also says, you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And in Christ, you are being built into a dwelling place for God. That's your identity in Christ. By grace, your identity in Christ is that you are in Christ. And that leads us, that's a good way to move into our third perspective, our unity in Christ. We've seen how the grace of God is found in unity with Christ. And we've seen how our identity is defined by being in Christ. And when put together, they give us a good perspective on what unity in Christ looks like. And you may have noticed, I skipped a really important word in my exegesis with you all this morning. Verse 11 says, therefore, remember. And whenever there's a therefore, you have to ask, what's that, what is that therefore, right? Why, so why is Paul taking time to highlight that Jews and Gentiles have been united together in Christ. It helps to to answer that question. It helps to look back a little bit, and then we'll look forward, and that will give you a clear insight of what Paul's doing. In Ephesians 2.10, the verse right before our passage this morning, and we've already read it, he says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Oh, okay. So an, an easy Next step in that argument would be, what's the good works that we're created for, right? But that's not what Paul goes on to. Paul doesn't explain what those good works are. He doesn't get back to that until Ephesians 4, where he says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. I urge you, he would say, with all humi- to, to walk worthy with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And that is a beautiful passage. But if we're honest, that's a hard passage, a hard calling to live up to. I, frankly, if we're honest, it's hard to live up to that calling in our own immediate family. How often do we treat our own brothers and sisters with all humility, all gentleness, with patience? If we can't even do that in our immediate family, here's then the problem. How do these two warring factions, the the animosity between the Jew and the Gentile, how are they supposed to live up to this? That's why Paul had to take a break. He said, you were created for good works, and this is why he says, therefore, remember. He's laying the foundation of how we can even achieve this, right? He says in verses 14 through 16, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both, Jew and Gentile, has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both, Jew and Gentile, both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Both Jews and Gentiles used fleshly markers as ways to define themselves. And when they did that, it created alienation. They claimed superiority. But these, in Christ, these fleshly markers can no longer serve as barriers between the two factions because in Christ's flesh, 
he has made them both one in himself. And that is a blood-bought peace. And when I say blood-bought peace, I'm not referring to the type of blood that is spilled by soldiers fighting for a king. And this is not the type of peace that's just the calm after a long war. No, this peace is perfect and eternal. This peace is the reconciliation between each other and us to God. And this blood that has purchased this peace is not some soldiers. It is the king's himself. King Jesus' own precious blood shed for many on the cross. This is true unity. This is true peace. The Roman Empire proclaimed Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. It is a peace of Rome that they purchased through conquest, through blood. But their peace was relative, and eventually Rome collapsed. But King Jesus, King Jesus, he himself achieved peace by his blood. He came and preached peace, as we read in our passage today. He came and preached peace, the Pax Christus, to the far-off Gentile and to the Jew nearby, in order that both may have access to the Father. Make both fellow saints and members of the household of God, and that household, unlike Rome, will never crumble. Not only will the household never crumble, but it continues to grow. It continues to be built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And both Jew and Gentile grow together, are being built together. And you, dear saints, if you have believed in Jesus by faith, this unity and this peace is yours in Christ Jesus. But... If you have not believed by faith in Christ Jesus, then this unity and peace is not yours. Apart from Christ, you will never be free of the things in your past that make you feel ashamed. Separated from Christ, you will continue to bear the guilt and consequences for every wrong thing you have done. Removed from Christ, you will never find true peace in yourself so long as you continue to use superficial, fleshly things to create your identity. And furthermore, without Christ, true unity with others cannot be attained, and false peace always collapses. So I want to address you, unbeliever. I want to address you who are without hope and without God in this world. If you have not believed in Christ by faith, you remain dead in your sins and trespasses. But that need not be your final end. If you this morning hear King Jesus preaching in your heart peace, then heed the call. Believe that he died for your sins on the cross. Purchase blood-bought peace on the cross so that you may be reconciled to God. Believe that Christ rose again from the dead and he ascended in heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father so that in him you can be given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Don't remain a stranger or an alien. Join the household of God by faith. And to you, dear Christians, To you, dear Christians who have believed in Christ, I want to exhort you to continue. As I said at the beginning, this passage is just the water's edge. We've dipped our toes into the ocean, but the entire ocean is before you. The the waters that are the doctrine of union with Christ, dear Christian, go sail on them. They are beautiful to look out from the shore, but they're something that needs to be sailed upon and experienced for yourself to really glory in its wonders. And you do that by picking up the Scriptures. 
We're built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So we are to commit ourselves to reading Scripture, commit ourselves to rereading them, and to see how they all align to Christ Jesus. They all point us to Christ Jesus. And this doctrine, it's, it's vast. This ocean is vast. So you will never be able to explore all of its breadths and its depths. But beneath the waters, there are treasures. There is life. Our Savior has the power to calm every storm, and He Himself is the water, sweet to drink and forever satisfying, the water of life. And He is also our ark in which we sail and are saved. So these are the blessings that we have by our union with Christ. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks that you purposed from all eternity and and chose us in Christ so that we could come back to you. We thank you for Christ who came to bring us into himself so that his righteousness will become ours. And we, we thank you for the spirit in whom we have access to you. And I pray as we go forward that you will continue to grow us, to build us together in unity and to grow us in our understanding of the glory and the wonder and the blessing and the grace that it is to be in union with you in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.